I'm David Clayton, and this is the Way of Beauty podcast, conversations on Catholic faith and culture. Hi, I'm here with Paul Jernberg. Uh, he is uh, an educator and a musician, and especially a, a wonderful composer of sacred music, of liturgical music. And some of you might have uh, heard some of his uh, recordings on YouTube, um, including even the St. Michael prayer, which we might come to at some point. Um, but he is also the director, I, I think that's your title, of the Magnificat Institute of Sacred Music, which is something uh, which really is a new project um, and is doing very exciting things in the field of the evangelization of the culture and with a special focus, as the name suggests, on sacred music. Um, so, Paul, it's great to have you here. It's good to be here, David. <laughs> okay, hi. Um, now, I would, I'd like you to begin, if you could, just tell us a little bit more about yourself, particularly your connection with the Magnificat Institute and what uh, you're hoping to achieve through the, the Institute. Sure. Uh, well, first of all, about myself, I've been around for a long time, even long before I became a Catholic, I've been a professional musician. I've, uh, I've done all sorts of things as a pianist and then as a choir director. Uh, came into the church in 1992, and uh, since then I've been working both as a teacher and also as a music director in various uh, parishes mostly here in Massachusetts. Uh, in the last couple of years, I've had the opportunity to, uh, to begin the work of Magnificat Institute. And the vision of this institute is really to work for and to facilitate the renewal of sacred music in parish life. Um, and our special focus is on those parishes, you might say, that are not yet served by some of the organizations that are out there doing good things. Uh, we're really trying to reach, you might say, the, the ordinary parishes that, where there's a lot of goodwill, but where there's maybe a lack of a specific plan or strategy or even a lack of even an understanding of what, uh, what sacred music is or what it can be, what it should be. So that's that's what we're doing, and we've got lots of we have several different projects going right now that are uh, attempting to fulfill that mission. Okay, perhaps to, I, I'm going to ask you um, about sacred music and your approach to composition in a moment. But could you just give us some insights into those projects and what you're doing? I know you had a, a recording of some of your sure. music recently, but just yeah, just tell us what's what you're doing. Very interesting. Sure. Good. Well, uh, as part of our, our long-term plan, one of the main components of that is to, is to continue to uh, cultivate a, a, a large choir that we have here. And uh, we are based at St. John's Parish in Clinton, Massachusetts. And uh, we're, doing, we're learning lots of music. We're, we're doing recordings. We're doing both video and audio recordings. And the idea with that is to give people a real concrete idea of what sacred music can be. Uh, and so we had a, a recording, a video and audio recording, great, good quality one, uh, done on February 1st. Uh, it was a votive mass of the Holy Spirit. And we, uh, we had over 130 members of our choir 
plus a, a rather large congregation. And we sang the entire mass. So it was not just the standard parts, let's say the lamp, the uh, Lord have mercy, glory to God. We did those. And we also sang the creed. We sang all the little parts of the mass that most often are not sung in English. We, we uh, sang a setting, which I've, I've composed for the mass. We also, in this mass, we also uh, included uh, some traditional chant and polyphony as well, which are so important. Um, so anyway, that's one of our projects. <laughs> that's, that's, that's one of the projects is, is this, uh, this large choir and the recordings we're doing, the filming we're doing with them. Uh, I'm also writing a book right now on uh, the renewal of sacred music. We're planning a workshop for late June of this, uh, this year. And uh, that's, those are some of the main things we're working on right now. Well, terrific. Uh, now, I do want to get to, to probe you a little bit on your philosophy of composition, which I, I've talked to you about this in the past, and I find it fascinating. But let's just get, talk about some general principles just to help us. So in, in simple terms, when we're talking about sacred music in the, the tradition of the Catholic Church, what are we referring to? What, what are you thinking of when you use that phrase? Well, I think it's clear that historically speaking, the whole idea of sacred music is the, the music that clothes the text of the sacred liturgy. Yeah. So it's very much, it's very much uh, integral. In fact, that's the word that is used in the various church documents about sacred music. It's, it's integral to the liturgy because it's united to the words. It clothes the words you might say, but even beyond clothing them, it's it's united. It's it's almost one and the same thing. So uh, in in the traditions we have, even from the very beginning, in the early church, you have uh, the the texts. Most of the texts are chanted. Mm. That's the sacred music, and, and it's we can trace it all the way back to Christ Himself uh, in His celebration of the Passover, for example, we know historically from Jewish history that this is something that any faithful Jew would have chanted many, if not all the parts of the, the Passover. And of course, that has its antecedents as in the Jewish tradition as well. But that would have, I, I, I've just, I've just, I immediately think, I wonder what Christ's voice sounded like. He must have had a beautiful voice as the perfect man it would be the model for singing i imagine anyway that's just my little reaction <laughs> it's very fascinating isn't it and 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 there's a there's a lot we could say about that and a lot <laughs> to reflect on because in fact there are traditions today for example in the syriac traditions mm. where they still sing in in syriac which is a form of aramaic and they though like for example in the Syri syrian orthodox they uh, they really believe that this is these are some of the melodies that are, they can right. trace it all the way back, to and uh, and the fact that it's you know it's it's a form of Aramaic is, is quite fascinating. So yes, yeah. So there's a lot that, because we don't have recordings or uh, musical notes, we can't know absolutely for sure. But we can we can um, we can certainly reflect on that and and. Uh, Right, so we have this uh, tradition, which 
really preceded Christ. He was sort of inserted in, like everything's at the centre of it. And then what happened with Christianity then, the, with the early churches? How, how right. did it spread? Oh, it took off. I mean, it was, it's, it's, it's a, tr a truly a phenomenal uh, growth, even from somebody coming from a non-Christian uh, viewpoint, simply, simply a historical viewpoint. Because as the church expands and as the gospel is preached all over the place, as far, far away places, uh, you know, north, south, east, west, so the apostles, we can trace their travels you know, past the, the Acts of the Apostles in the New Testament, we can read like Eusebius Church History. We, we can read the accounts of how these apostles went to different places. And as they went, it's rather, I would say, it's obvious from church history that um, that this chant, this original chant uh, of the of Christ and the apostles. It spread wherever they went because we can we can see today that all of the traditions that trace their their history back to the early church they all have sacred chant traditions. Mm. It's, it's universal. Every one of them does. So that speaks very, I think, very clearly that there's some there's a reason for that. They're they're all coming from a, the same origin, and there, there are similar principles, even though there's a you know, wide diversity now in the historical development. There are, you know, uh, the Syriac chant is very different from the Gregorian chant, which is different from Coptic chant. These are all different forms of that, but there also are common principles. Mm -hmm. So, uh, that's, did I answer your question? Yes, I, I, want, I was hoping you were going to tell us some of those common principles. <laughs> so, yeah. Well, that's that's coming. That I'd be happy right. to talk about that yes. as well. I think it's very important. Um, so, well, why don't you do that? I will come back to the common principles. Um, so, what what unites it? I, I imagine it's this this basic thing of, of uh, unity with the language and the sacred language. I've noticed that you've differentiated in with reference to music between the ideas of sacred and holy. That's right. Could you just expand on that a bit, please? And perhaps I would be happy. related to the chant. Yeah. Right. I should go back one step, though, first, because sure. people will say when they hear me uh, defining sacred music in this way, they'll say, aha, no, sacred music is much bigger than that. It's also religious music, it's popular music. You know, because in uh, recent church documents, the, that definition has been expanded. It started actually in 1958, as far as I can see in uh, uh, Musica Sacra, De Musica Sacra et Sacra Liturgia. It's a, it's a document that came out of the uh, Congregation for Rites in 1958 under Pius XII. And that was the first time where this definition was expanded somewhat. So that since that time, if we're going to be officially correct, we need to say liturgical music or sacred liturgical music. However, having said that, what I just described to you as being the, the thing that it is, that's the reality of what has been called sacred music for many, for a long, long, long time. So rather than every time saying sacred liturgical music, I prefer just to say sacred music. Okay, so that's what you're referring to. So what about holy then as distinct from sacred? How would you, such uh, an excellent question. Because, you see, um, one of the landmark 
documents of the church by it was the uh, motu proprio of Pius X in 1903 that was on, specifically on sacred music. And um, basically what he's doing is to is to define, to articulate what this thing is and what are its it, the, uh, the, the prerequisites, what are the characteristics that flow from the reality of sacred music. Mm -hmm. And the first one he names is holiness or sanctity. And now that word holiness is very, or holy, is very similar to the word sacred. And sometimes they're used interchange. Sometimes they're used interchangeably, but there is a clear distinction at the same time. Holiness, when we use that word holiness or uh, sanctitate, I believe it is uh, in in Latin, it indicates what something is, right? So it's not. Whereas the word uh, sacred or uh, sacra in Latin has to do more with how we approach something. So if, if I if I'm going to be you know really precise when I say music needs to be sacred or when music is sacred, it's talking about the way in which I approach this thing mm -hmm. that I'm approaching as something holy. It's the thing itself is holy, but the sacred generally has, it's closely related to the word consecrated. Um, and now holy, on the other hand, is basically saying, as a general rule, there, this something is, is uh, coming from God or it's, it's so closely associated with the divine that the only, that our proper response is to treat it as something sacred. Our proper response yes is deep reverence. Mm. And I think that, you know, it's, you often hear people talking today about how music needs to be sacred. Sacred music needs to be sacred. It's a little redundant, but as well as beautiful, but you don't hear as much about people reflecting on this aspect of sanctity or the, the thing itself. There should be something in the music itself, which evokes our profound reverence. Right. Uh, now, immediately, I, of course, I always think of parallels in art, which is you know, painting, which is a thing that I know a right. little bit about. And it, it's in, in a way, it's, uh, there's, there's a couple of things. First of all, the, the meaning of holy, one of the meanings is that it's set apart. It speaks of a different world from ours. And I, I always think of this really in the, the, in the context of the liturgy and the, the art forms that include music you know architecture painting that right. that the the liturgy is the wellspring of its own culture in other words it's speaking of a, it's coming from a world that is apart from ours and um so always there is something if it is genuinely holy in other words it is speaking that what we're seeing is a reflection of the heavenly um you would expect to see uh, something that is common to all of these uh, traditions um, because it's coming from the same place. Now, it might be manifested in different ways and you can get a, a cultural, uh, it, it, it can be informed by external cultural considerations to some degree as well. 
but the dominant feature has to be that it comes from heaven, so to speak. That, that's what the guiding hand, that's what, it, that's what it's speaking of. The, the other thing that occurs to me is that even if we define it like that, we still have to say, well, what, what does that sound like? How do you, what, are there criteria? And, the, and we have the same sort of problem. We don't even have a, a moto proprio or an art, which is, gives us as much information as you get with music. Um, so what we have to resort to if we're, if we're looking for guidance is tradition. We, we say, okay, we must respect centuries of tradition in this field and and that's the best guidance we had now i'm imagining then that it's the same with music that you, your starting place is a respect for the tradition of what holiness is is, is that right absolutely yeah absolutely and and um so on the one hand in music we have the uh, the whole this immense rest uh, rep, uh, repertoire of gregorian chant and polyphony in the west and of course we have the the, the other rites have and the other churches have their their uh, corresponding musical traditions. So that's extremely important. But I would say that also uh, united with that is the spiritual, the, you know, we say mystagogical tradition. Right. So that there's something mysterious beyond the form of the music itself, but yet which is somehow present in this music, in this tradition that is always drawing us to something greater than the externals of the music uh, so but yes we need we really need that guidance of the of these traditional forms in order to be able to understand it uh, yeah. yes and so in that sense Pius the 10th is in a way he's he's observing what is within the tradition and remarking upon it and saying it, it, he's not sort of drawing this out of nowhere he's saying these are the things that I see in traditional music. And so his starting point is what is already accepted as sacred in the sense that you're working with. And That's right. For centuries. That's absolutely right. And I mean, so, you know, when we start reading Pius X and you're know, just amazed how rich that his, doc, his, his teachings are, it, we might be tempted to think, well, yeah, he's, he's sort of um, somehow innovating this but he's not, you're, you're absolutely right. He's observing the, the reality of, of the tradition and he's articulating it very well. And so there's other conditions that there's universality is one and goodness of form, is that, is that right? That's right, yeah, and literally, right the, the, right. the second one is literally goodness of forms, um, bonitate formarum, goodness of forms, which, often is translated in as simply as beauty um but it's good to be i think that i think that his precise words really are important there it's it, he would be, be in agreement that sacred music needs to be beautiful but i think the fact that he says goodness of forms really is very significant and goodness i i, I imagine this is very close to good the good with a capital G. So it's a form that reflects the good, the true and the beautiful, who is God. And therefore is, is, a, is another facet of this aspect of holiness, that the, the liturgy is the wellspring of its own culture. It's coming from a world that is not ours, not the one that we normally perceive. Right. Yes. Um, 
that's one thing. I think there's more too in the in the yeah. forms. I think there's um, and I, especially it's it's interesting to reflect on why he used the word those words instead of the word beauty, okay. even though of course he was certainly uh, <laughs> a proponent of beauty. Yeah, for, yeah. Well, certainly. But um, I think in my understanding and, uh, and experience of, of the traditional uh, repertoire, there is this aspect of, of you might say, modesty or, austeri or austerity of form that by its nature is pointing away from itself. Mm -hmm. that, so you might say you go to a concert, for example, and this is music, you might say music for its own sake. And we are, we are, you know, transported by the beauty of a concert, for example. Now, the beauty of, that is in the liturgy, as I see it, is it, it's, uh, it's always oriented to this, this greater reality. It's, well, it's united to the greater reality, but it's, it's, it's drawing us in to the, the um, this, you might say, contemplative dimension mm. of the literature. So, and, and again, given that the, the, the source of this is not the, a, a historical culture, it is the timeless wellspring of Christian culture, which is then one would expect this to be universal as well, in the sense that it, um, it will speak to all people and that the liturgical dimension engages all of us. And so I always think of this, I, I just, I see you dying to get it. I, but, um, that's, I always think that when people talk about cultural imperialism, Western Europe, for example, tradition, traditional culture, I, I would say, well, some of this, some of that is of Western Europe of a certain time, but to the degree that it's Christian, Actually, it's universal, and in any way, that culture began in the Middle East. Right. <laughs> it spread, as you described. It is not intrinsically Euro Western European. It is, and it's, neither is it Middle Eastern. It's actually Christian. And yes. those, and we have to, we always access the universal through the particular. So you can't totally separate one from the other, but you've got to start somewhere. And so it's quite right, I think, that, this, for example, you, you get uh, music in the uh, Christian music composed in South America that began in the forms that would have been in Spain. That is the natural way. And in iconography, you get Greeks who brought icons to Russia, and, and they look just like Greek icons, but then the universal element then expressed itself in a Russian way but that happened organically and no one said this is Greek cultural imperialism they wanted that beautiful Christian culture and then they made it their own afterwards right right and so that that's my response to the universe to the universal um, I want to come to a phrase which I see we we, we sort of swapped notes before we spoke this this reference to the holy gift um it, it, do uh, respond if you want to on to the my what i said about the universal but what but then perhaps go on to what what you're talking about so not just a, a gift that's um 
is holy in connection with sacred music. It's a phrase you use a lot, I've noticed. That's right, that's right. So, well, let me just say a word about Universal, a little bit more about Universal. Yeah, absolutely, yeah, I'd like you to, yeah, great. So, I, I agree with what you said about Universal, but there, it's very interesting because Pius X and stating these three basic principles, mm -hmm. what I noticed is the long, the more you reflect on these, you find that each one of them is a deep well that you can go farther and farther. It's not simple. So universal, for example, it's not only universal among cultures, among different kinds of people, but it's also universal in terms of each person because each of us has a whole wide variety of experiences in our lives. Yes. Sorrow, joy, that are, you know, and, and that, so this is one of the amazing things about traditional sacred music is that it, you might say it fits over that spectrum of experience, even in the individuals. Whereas we can easily think of kinds of music that sort of fit when we're happy or fit when we're really sad or, you know, or fit in this particular, but that's something about uh, sacred chant and polyphony as well, that they seem to have this capacity to uh, fit our lives even when you know in, in a whole the whole spectrum of experience so I, that's just one more thing i wanted to say about universal in in complement to what you said but going back to the idea of holy gift yeah it, the thing is we, i think we'd say already that we believe and we we know that the the liturgy for example is is something that is a holy gift it's not something that we create it's something that we receive. And this is, you know, ben, uh, Pope Benedict XVI uh, wrote very eloquently about this, that it, unless we realize this, that, it's, that this is essentially a gift from Christ through, through the church, then we, will, we won't be able to fully receive the grace of the liturgy. Similarly, I would say that this, this just observing the history of sacred music, that this is... Um, Sacred music is united to that. It's not. It's not something ex, uh, extraneous to it. it. And so you can see in this development that that um, there was a tremendous sense of 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 guarding this great gift and passing it on from generation to generation. That it was was indeed. Now, obviously, Gregorian chant is a different is different in its form than the original chant. Of the early church, and just as like it, this is true in all the different rites, but but still, its origin is in this gift of Christ, and then the church, in a holy way, uh, uh, preserving it, developing it, uh, is as a holy thing uh, mm -hmm. that is worthy of our devotion. So, so I would say, just as we we venerate the liturgy and we we venerate the sacred scriptures. Uh, the traditional sacred music, um, it, it's, of course, is a little different because there is this adaptation going on, but still, that is the way that it was able to grow in such a magnificent way over the centuries, was that sense of receiving this, this gift that is united to the liturgy. Right, and I'm going to put... Does that answer your question? It does, yes. And, and just, just to explain, we won't list the, the, the traditions that you refer to here, but I'm going to put some of your notes up on my uh, on my website, thewayofbeauty.org, 
um, such as the Gallican and the Ethiopian and the Eritrean. So I'll put some of these notes up, uh, the, the various sort of chant traditions that exist. Um, so there's a couple of things then that I want to move on to, that, that the nurturing of this gift, as you described. So one is the, the milestone, as you put it, of the development of polyphony and also homophony, I, I think you use that phrase, the, the employment of harmony and counterpoint in conjunction with it. And then I want to move on to what, a development which perhaps is not so good, which is, uh, you refer to it, I, I know, as art music, um, which is not bad in itself, but perhaps not, not sacred. Um, and holy in the way that we would want for the liturgy. But that, let's talk about um, polyphony and uh, the use of harmony and counterpoint as well. What, why, the, why you see these as milestones, but you seem to be positive about them. You're not thinking that this is detrimental. That's right, because um, again, going back to this principle from the very beginning that there is an adaptation that, that's healthy and holy, mm. right? So Gregorian chant itself is a development. It's not, it, it's in its adaptation that's based on this original chant of the of Christ and the apostles as it was brought to Rome and beyond. So already we see this growth. And it's a very, generally speaking, it's a very slow growth. But there is growth and it's, it's very, it's quite significant. Now, uh, somewhere around the 9th, 10th century, they were the first attempts, you might say, at, at somewhat primitive harmonies. Because up to that time, as far as we know, all of the music of the liturgy was sung either by one person, such as the priest or the cantor. And then when the people sang together, as far as we know, it was unison. Okay. Right? So now you've got a new thing happening uh, where you have experimentation with harmonies. And the first, you know, as I mentioned with, with uh, organum, which is basically we add a perfect fourth or perfect fifth to the, the melody. And um, that has a special, a certain effect. But what happens is you, it's almost like an inexorable movement towards experimenting more and trying new things over the next centuries up until, you know, the time there, there are many uh, different moments important moments between the 10th century and the, and let's say the 15th century. But what we see is sort of a flowering of this in the, in the Renaissance in the, in Western Europe. And uh, so it, it's clear that you, if, when you uh, look at this music, when you hear this music, you realize it, there, it is, there is a, you might say an organic growth from the chant. It's not, it's not in contradiction to the chant. It's, it's, it seems that, that it is a, 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 an inspired adaptation. And we see it as we, you know, the, all the other uh, cultural uh, forces that were going on that were eventually culminated in the res Renaissance. We can see this, this movement prior to the, reveren the re Renaissance where th there's this like, a great desire and a great inspiration to try these ideas. So there, uh, this continued to grow, and there was a, there was a good deal of controversy 
uh, in different places at different times. And most notably in the 16th century in Rome, there was a question, do we allow this music? You know, is it, mm. And there were so some people that were, were, were very much against it for the reason, some of the reasons that we'll talk later about these different characteristics of sacred music, the biggest objection that I'm aware of was the fact that the words were somehow obscured. Mm. But the extent that it could be established that the words would not be obscured, but that they would be actually, you might say, amplified or, or made even more, more clear, uh, it was... Uh, there was a, a clear moment of approval from the church and from uh, from the Pope in the 16th century, uh, right around the time of the Council of Trent. And so what I see going on here, too, it, it's, it's, this is something we can talk for a long time about, and, and it's, it's so interesting. But I think that as a musician and as a, a church musician, that you see there are, you know, we talked about this reverence for tradition, but, you know, there's also another aspect of this that we need to understand, and that is, as a musician, if you are really approaching this as the, as what it is, the sacred liturgy, the musician, by nature, is going to try to resonate with the people with whom he is worshiping. Mm. He is going He's going to do everything so that these, this music and these words are not merely serving his needs, but that they're somehow drawing everybody into the worship of God in the context of the liturgy. Um, and this so, is, oh, go on, yes, carry on, carry on. So that's, that's sort of my own insight, you might say, as, as a musician, as a composer, because I understand that impulse. You know, the great commandment, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. The two are inextricably combined. So that if we're truly loving God and worshiping God, there should be something in us that is not content with merely serving our own needs, but in, in bringing people into that, <laughs> that amazing uh, relationship, that amazing thing which the liturgy is and which we're meant to to really truly be in communion with christ so that's that's why that's why i'm so convinced of the appropriateness of the movement in the renaissance the towards renaissance polyphony and to the extent that it continues the the principles of, of it, it that it maintains certain principles and in so doing, it also draws people in more effectively to the okay. liturgy. Now, I'm going to comment as someone who has sung your music. And I, I, I just want to commend to anybody listening to this the music of Paul um, for, for the Mass. Um, it, the, the reason that I was so attracted to it is I'm a, you know, an okay sort of, uh, you know, a reasonable number two or three in a bass section in an ordinary parish choir. That's how I'd classify my singing ability. Um, and I just loved your music. It, it's, it has an accessibility, but it, it seems to speak to me of a continuation of these traditions. And uh, you use uh, drones, you use these sort of intervals as well, that. Uh, sort of parallel movements and 
um, but in a way that I hadn't heard before, but nevertheless seems to connect to them. Now, I'm not a musical expert, but um, it's, the, it's actually relatively simple to sing, although it doesn't sound like that when you hear the music together is the way that it strikes me. The other thing that I noticed is that I would um, pass your music on to the students at Thomas More College when I was there, and I still now, when I um, we have a little men's group here, we sing You're Our Father and the, and the setting of the St. Michael prayer, uh, which I will post up uh, for people to hear. Uh, not us, not me singing, a, a better recording. Um, and what strikes me is, first of all, how um, in your arrangements, um, each part sings better in relation to the others than when they do on their own. Somehow it's, it's easier to sing it when you're in the choir than it is trying to work out what the bass part is in isolation. Um, so I, I hope those are the things that you wanted to hear, because to me they, they seem like good things. And, but when you're composing, it, what I'm picking up here is that it, is there's this principle of noble accessibility. You're doing the hard work to understand deeply what you're doing, to understand the tradition, but then it has to connect, consistent with your mission, with the, me, the person in the parish who's got, you know, and a reasonable voice, likes to sing, but I don't have years of training, but I always want to sing the liturgy as much as I can, even as a congregational member. Um, right. Maybe you could just react to that and just talk a little bit about your if you can, for the ordinary listener, shall we say, your principles of composition, given what you've just told us about what went on, for example, in the, the 16th century. Yeah. That's great, yeah. Well, actually, a long time ago, I actually did, I studied uh, the, the uh, compositional techniques of Renaissance polyphony. I had a, a great opportunity to study with Erwin Fisher, who is uh, one of the, He's written one of the textbooks with Stella Roberts' modal counterpoint, and uh, I had one-on-one -on -one lessons with him and uh, for for some years way back when. Um, what I sense, what I'm doing now with composition though is different. So I'm not trying to imitate uh, Renaissance polyphony. I love that whole uh, genre in you know, Palestrina, Victoria. Uh, Josquin, et cetera, et cetera. It's, and it's something that we do a lot in my choir. We, mm. In the choir I direct, we, it's, it's a very important part of our repertoire. And it's very important for anybody, I think, um, who aspires to be a church musician or, a, and, or choir director. What I'm doing now is a little bit different because we're no longer in the Renaissance, <laughs> which, I mean, the music does have this universal quality, as we were talking about before, so I, I'm not downplaying that, but what really stimulated me to get going with composition was the sense that some people were resonating well with the chant and polyphony, and some people were very edified, but I, I dare say the majority of the people in the parish where I was serving, mm -hmm. was not, it was not connecting with them. Okay. And, and also... It was also the question of needing the ordinary of the mass, you know, the, the standard parts that we repeat every Sunday, and that we didn't, um, we, we were required, even then by the pastor, to do it in English, and we were, you know, what are we going to do? And so how to, how to best 
engage the the normal parishioner, you might say. Mm. And in order to do that, um, it really, I, um, how do I say? It's not like I just figured this out. It's, it's something more mysterious than that. <laughs> because I think if I can try to explain my experience, which is it's difficult to do, but it's more like this. It's like you enter as fully as you can. I enter as fully as I can into the reality of liturgy through and um, and and from that place to um, to seek to pray for inspiration and to discover this an amazing inspiration that's coming so it's not it's really not it's it's um it, i really experience as a gift of grace i i do but there's a there's a strong technical component to that though it it, it, re, it requires a certain amount of training um the i found that there were certain models that just were with just was i was naturally drawn to um it might be that for myself, I came into the Catholic Church in Sweden in the context of a Franciscan monastery where they sang uh, the daily office of the Mass with both Gregorian chant, mainly with Gregorian chant, but with a good deal of, of uh, Byzantine, uh, Slavic, harmonized chant as well. So that, that was very natural for me. Mm-hmm. And so my experience of the, you know, the Slavic uh homophony mm. uh, which means basically that you're that everyone's singing the words at the same time but that there are harmonies mm. and that and so so my experience of that just clicked you might say is a natural way to engage the ordinary person right yeah <laughs> so that that's one of the things now uh so i would say that that and and then um, I could talk a lot about the process of the composition. Uh, it might be a little bit too detailed for right now, but there's there, there are there's like I've sort of articulated a whole seven or no seven or eight or nine steps. <laughs> and, but it's it does require it it requires a certain amount of training. It requires um, yeah. Now I'm a little bit lost in my train of thought. Help me. <laughs> no, no, I, I was just asking you. Um, the I feel you've you've answered because what I was commenting on is that the there's a lot of hard work that goes into. I, let's. I'll just step back. I always think of uh, George Bernard Shaw. There's a story of him. He wrote a letter to someone and said, "I'm very sorry. I, 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 this is such a long letter. I didn't have time to write a short one." And and I tend to feel that with the composition in the sacred music, that really um, it's a the you need inspiration and uh, technique and understanding in order to write something which is going to seem natural to congregations but participates in these uh, special qualities that you've described coming from Pius X, for example, and his observations. Let's take it. That's absolutely right, David. Yeah, it, 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 people are deceived. They, they think that they hear here's something that seems rather simple, and they think that means that it's easy, but it's it's not true. It it, it yes. really requires lots. That I love that George Bernard Shaw quote. That's so true. Yeah. 
Okay. Now, let, let's, um, as gently as possible, <laughs> uh, move on to the, the conservatory um, and uh, the influence it had. So uh, another part of that uh, motu proprio that you mentioned was, uh, I can't forgotten that he, did he refer to theatrical music at Pius X? But he was, was, was actually against music, which today we would think would be an improvement in many cases. Uh, Correct. Yeah, and this is a very important, I think for anybody who's seeking to understand where, we're, our, where we are today with, with sacred music, with liturgical music, we need to understand what happened in the Renaissance and directly and, and between then and now. And a big part of it is what you're alluding to with the direct, the uh, development of what we call classical music or art, art music. So do you want me to talk about that or do you want to, you want to? No, no, please, please do. And, and uh, yes, and how you feel it differs from really this tradition of sacred music and, and why uh, Pius X felt moved to uh, suggest that it wasn't the best thing. Right. Well, I think it's not clear that Pius X was speaking in any way against the, you know, the great works of, you know, liturgical works of Mozart or Haydn. He, he, he come across strong in that way. He does talk about theatrical music, in, which was a real problem in his time. But um, we can see if we go back to the Renaissance period and the music that was composed at that time, that it was a... Uh, it was, you might say, sort of a, a turning point because that music in itself seems to s still share many of the characteristics that we can see in, in, in Gregorian chant and chant from other traditions. And if we have the time at some point, I, can, I could list even more. Uh, and there's, there's all sorts of things objectively we can see with that music. Now, but from the Renaissance going into the Baroque in music, what we see is a more and more of an emphasis on secular venues. Okay. So this is just, this is not my opinion. This is just the reality that it, it's not that composers abandon. No, they don't abandon the liturgy, but there's more and more emphasis on, on, on opera and concerts. And this is just this is reality. And, and it, I think in one way we have to say, say that this is something, uh, Magnificent. I mean, it, it is. It's something that's almost beyond beyond comprehension in the breadth and depth of its of of the beauty that came out of this movement and that has come out over the last five hundred years. I mean, anybody who's not not deeply moved and inspired by the great composers like Mozart and Bach and so on, like, this is something that that is truly great and beautiful, good and beautiful. However, it's gradually moving away. It's no longer oriented towards the liturgy mm. in the same way it been. And, and so you have this very unusual situation where you can go to a concert, you can be inspired by this concert, you might even be inspired to pray or to have a conversion, but it's not, but it's still this aspect, it's, it's not, it's a, it's a different thing and so so you have this stupendous development of technique and 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 uh in art in, in in musical arts 
with with the, the great composers and the performances and so forth. But in a way, the liturgy now the culture is no longer focusing on the liturgy in the same way. And all the, these basic things that are so important for music and the liturgy to do, it, it's, it's like it's, it's getting slowly but surely, it's, it's getting lost. Mm. And um, so this might seem controversial to some, and some you know, might uh, want to argue with me strongly about this, but uh, it seems clear to, to me that it's a, it's a sort of cutting off point and it's not. And again, it's not to say that the great composers are are not doing magnificent works, but it's to say that their works, however magnificent, they're not any. They're they're they're, they're moving away from the fundamental principles of of liturgical music that have been in place before. And you're talking about the stylistic elements. So so we're not talking about when, when uh, it's an opera, which is clearly not liturgy. We're saying that that's, that style of music um, doesn't really doesn't carry over. It might be perfect for an opera, but it doesn't carry over. Even if you uh, you have the, the setting of the words of the mass, in some way it isn't appropriate for that in the way that chant and polyphony is. It's the very essence of what that constitutes the style of the music. Right, that, that's exactly right, David. And I and I think uh, this is a very deep subject. And I think one of the things we can say is that by its nature, the development of art music, of classical music, it draws our attention to the the greatness of the music itself, and sometimes the themes of the work. You know, the, there, there can be uh, religious texts and so forth, and, and and we're drawn into that. But it's essentially one of of admire, admiration and maybe inspiration. But with a liturgy, what we see is that, we might say this, this austere, a certain austerity, as I mentioned before, in the form, the actual style, the form of the music, that is drawing us into something deeper than the music itself, you might say. It, it's the, the reality of Christ's presence. that We might say the consent contemplative dimension or the interior dimension of liturgy. It's meant to be an intimate experience as well as universal in which, in which this is difficult to talk about, isn't it? But, but it's, there's that, that's what we, I think was gotten away from. I go to listen to Mozart, Mozart Requiem and I'm transported by its, its great beauty. And I, um, I'm totally, I totally love it. But it's not, it's not the liturgy in the same way that chant is, or that even the sacred polyphony is. So, so that this is, this would require a lot more time to really do this topic justice. But that gives a little. Uh, and and the, now here's something that uh, I'm going to say. I, I, I'm trying to remember the name of the Scottish composer. He might be sort of one of Britain's most. He's a Catholic and one of Britain's most famous. Composers, you will know who, who is who am I thinking of? Can, um, Dave McMillan. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Now, what's interesting is that, uh, and I don't know if he listens to this podcast, so I, I'm hoping that I'm not misrepresenting. But uh, he was a uh, would visit a monastery in Scotland that I used to visit from time to time called uh, Pluscardin, um, a Benedictine monastery, and 
uh, he uh, would talk on composition. Now, he is a product, and by all accounts, at the top of his profession at the moment. I mean, he's, I think he's Sir James Macmillan, and he's a, a, a classical composer. But his um, formation is in what I've heard you refer to as the conservatory. It, it's the... Um, it's really steeped in the last 500 years rather than the previous 1500. Uh, and, um, and he himself, what I think was interesting, he himself said that at, at a certain point, uh, having listened to the monks chanting at Puskhoven, where they, they take the, the chant very seriously, that he was no longer going to compose liturgical music. He just said that, that I don't know. I, I don't know whether he said I don't know how to do it, but what I'm doing is not appropriate for the liturgy. And in a sense, he acknowledges this. Now, that's not down to to downplay his music in other contexts, but it, it seems to be that he is reinforcing what you're saying. That um, to be at the top of the field in the conservatory doesn't automatically mean you can step across from uh, from one to the other uh, to the liturgy. Well, this is such an important. I think this is a very good point you're bringing up because. Um, of course, I myself, you know, attended the conservative, I was American Conservatory of Music in Chicago and then at Lawrence University and other schools. And um, the, a lot of very good people and a very good training in many ways. And it's, this is where people go today normally who are serious, you might say serious about music, including people who are serious about church music. And so it's to be understood that when we, you know, there's a very um, in-depth and demanding formation for classical music, right? And, and it, it takes a lot of time and effort. I remember when I was first to get up at Lawrence that it was, you know, I was required to have four hours a day of, of practice in the practice room, and just on the piano. And then beyond that, you're studying the history of music and, and theory and so forth and so forth. There's a lot that goes into it. So, but this, this basically, what this gives you is the formation in this, uh, this style of art music or classical music that, is, that has been continually developing more and more, you might say, independent of the needs of the liturgy. Yeah. And, and so it's, I, I'm not surprised that Many people who are great, you know, they're really good people, they're really good musicians, it's, it's somehow that they take those classical models as if that is the starting point for the liturgy. And that's the, that's the standard they want to head for. And if, if their music is, is really, if they're going to be really serious about the music, they're going to bring that formation into what they do for the liturgy. And I think it's, I think it's a totally honest, sincere approach. And, even you might say very diligent, maybe even very pious, because they're, they're the ones who are really, they've taken their education seriously, right? Yeah. And, and even going that far, they're usually bucking the trend of what their professors are telling them. If they're interested in, in going that direction, they're taking a bit of a risk. So, so I don't want to be discouraging having no. some, uh, but yeah. Yeah, exactly. And I think, but this is, um, yeah, this is, I think, a very important point. It's just the, the question is, again, what are, what are the basic principles of writing music for the liturgy? Or what, this is, I think, it's, it's, it's so essential. And I, and I would 
um, with all great respect for my colleagues who are great classical musicians, and I, and I know several of them whom I really admire, I, would, I think all of us need to look, take another really clear look and try to make sure that we are understanding these fundamental principles that belong to, to traditional sacred music and which, you know, which are different. They're, they're a different, you know, there, there are a lot of points in common. So, for example, uh, voice tech, vocal technique, there's a lot that's common to sacred music and secular music, apart from any consideration of whether it's art music or, or not. Um, there, there are lots of things that are just fundamental musical, um, part of fundamental musical training. But then there's all sorts of ways that I would, I would assert that they really part ways. Um, that there, there really, there are things that are appropriate to the to the conservatory to the art, art music uh, movement, and there's it's distinct though. There's a distinction, and I don't, you know, there, you don't see a lot of people talking about that distinction these days. Well. I think this is something we should explore more. Uh, we've, we've been going for about an hour, and so I, I, I think it's time to tie up. I, I would love to continue this and, and explore this more deeply. We've got a lot more to talk about. Um, yeah. And uh, could you just tell us, first of all, where can people... I want, I, I want to come back to, to the fact that your music... Uh, you're too modest to say so, but I'm going to say it is wonderful music for the liturgy. You compose in both English and Latin, for, or for the for the Latin. I, I know you've, you've completed a a Latin mass setting as well. Um, where can people find out more about what you're doing and your music, and maybe even order copies of it for their parish choir? And and I would encourage uh, if you're a part of a parish choir. Think about getting Paul's music. It is, uh, it's very singular for an ordinary choir, and you will be amazed. I know that I, I taught the students uh, with my limited musical abilities. We, uh, we would work out how to sing your music, and then people would, be, would just be uh, amazed at, at the, the quality of the sound that they produced. It, it really is written for, for people to sing and to lead a congregation and but nevertheless it has that beautiful timeless quality so i'm going to say that that about, about your music i um i hope you're not cringing at my descriptions i'm getting something wrong technically but where can people find out about this and the institute where, where are the websites right so uh pauljernberg.com is the, the website that I've had for quite a few years now where the, people can find my music and some recordings and some mm. YouTube videos. We're also just about to launch our new website, MagnificatInstitute.org. So that, those two are the places to go. But okay. for the moment, pauldrenberg.com and then very soon, MagnificatInstitute.org. Yes, and um, just to say that... that, um, that that this this music really does connect. So um, we, I was part of a recording of a setting of the Saint Michael's Prayer. This is almost a sort of an afterthought. I was with you. I'm going to tell the story of this before we go. So I was sitting. We were sitting in the, in the room, and you and you were just on your computer 
doing this. And you turned to me and said, do you think that we should say Michael the Archangel or St. Michael the Archangel or something? And I said, well, maybe I think this sounds best anyway. So I answered the questions. Then you said, later, the ne- I think it was the next day, you sent me the score and it had arranged by Paul Jernberg and David Clayton. Okay. <laughs> and I thought, well, that's, that's pretty good. And, and the, the way I tell the story, it's evidence of your humility that you included me and evidence of mine that I've never objected to it. Um, but I, I, I really uh, don't think I deserve to be there, but I'm not asking you to take it off. But a little group of people, just to give you the, the power, a little group of people, uh, my friend Tom Larson, who's a friend of both of us, he just put his phone down. We had a group of four men. Um, Tom is a good singer, I'm sort of pretty average. Uh, but we had four of us, and we sang this St. Michael's Prayer. Uh, the next day, they uploaded it onto YouTube, and I think it's now at about sort of just under 100,000 views or something like that. It's amazing how it took off. The Magnificat um, Journal got in touch with me and asked me about it. And so I told them all about it, and they, they featured it along with an, an icon I'd painted of St. Michael as well. Um, and so this, this really just, is just testament to the, the power of, of the music when, when we get this right. Um, and you've done so much more than, than that. It's just a little story. But the other thing is that I, I think of all the places, and I know more and more parishes are picking up on this and playing your music, but for example, the Oxford Oratory, which is not an experimental place. So the, the Oxford Oratory is, has a good choir and they are very much focused. On, I'm sure they know Pius X back to front. Um, and I, you told me recently that they play your music regularly your mass is that is that right that's my understanding I'm hoping to go there this spring actually to visit okay yeah. um, so i think that's a, a strong recommendation um really of of just how good paul's music is so you've uh, you've uh, and i spare your blushes now as you listen to me um so do you have any final words before we we close off anything um just to encourage maybe a composer, somebody listening who wants to compose, where, what might the first step? We can go into the second and third in future podcasts. Right, well, I, I would say one of the most important things is, as we mentioned before, is that we need to have a, an immersion in the great traditions. And I, that is certainly a fundamental for anybody interested in composing for the liturgy, is that they need to, um, be well versed in the traditions of, of sacred chant and polyphony. Uh, beyond that, I would say also make sure that you have good uh, a good formation in fundamental uh, music theory and harmony, because without that, you'll you'll be <laughs> you'll you'll be having some problems as well. So I, I would say those two things are. Fundamentals. Now, there's a lot more to it than that, of yes. course. There's, there's no easy way. And, prob- and, and along with those things, of course, pray for the inspiration from the Holy Spirit, because with, yes. without the Holy Spirit, we can do nothing. But you can't, <laughs> you can't either just say, well, I'm just going to pray and hope it all comes out. There is the, there's the, human, the disciplinary, the discipline of, of formation as well. 
And th this is true in painting and I think in all the arts. It's uh, pray for rain and dig for water. You do the work and you ask, you need God's inspiration if he chooses to give it. And we need the disposition to be able to follow it and the humility. And all of this is a work in progress, I think, for all yeah. of us in whatever we do. Paul Jernberg, thank you very much. And I can't wait till the, the, next, uh, the next time we talk. Uh, thank you so much for your time. Thank you, David. You've been listening to the Way of Beauty podcast, conversations on Catholic faith and culture. If you enjoyed this episode, then please give us a five-star review on iTunes. This will help others to find it too. Also, if you're interested in delving more deeply into the material that we discuss, you can do a course at the Pontifex University website. That's pontifex.university.